the end of this week, and uh, some things uh, kind of fell through a little bit yesterday uh, on the arrangements to get her down there. I was not going to be going down, and uh, but some things uh, happened yesterday that it made it where I'm going to have to be the one to take her down there and uh, get her set up uh, in school and get her enrolled and everything down there. And so with that in mind, uh, I will be here this Wednesday night, uh, but I will have to leave, and I'm not sure which day it will be yet, sometime between that Wednesday and, and next Sunday. So Brother Kevin Douglas is going to preach, Lord willing, next Sunday. Um, if the rapture happens, we'll just let the Lord preach in heaven. And we, we, uh, But uh, other than that, uh, he'll be here uh, for the services next week. And then um, the following Wednesday, I'll also be gone. And Brother Dan Roberts will be here with us and Miss Carmen. And uh, looking forward to that as well. So you'll get a couple, at least a week of really good preaching. So, and uh, looking forward to hearing some good things um, from those services. And uh, very excited to hear both of the men and what God puts on their hearts. I like to hear good preaching. And I know I am a preacher, but uh, we need it just as much as anybody else to hear good preaching. And so I like to tune in and listen to these guys preach and um, I learn an awful lot, uh, oftentimes, listening to other folks uh, preach. And uh, don't think that a pastor is somebody who knows all of Scripture and is infallible. We, <laughs> I was telling somebody this week, I said, our desire, our heart's desire is to be right on Scripture. And we study a lot and we try to be right. And we, that, that's what we long for. But we are fallible. <clears throat> We're tainted by a sin nature. And um, so sometimes we miss the mark. Sometimes we we teach something in Scripture and we have to go back and be like, oh, that wasn't quite it. We missed the mark there. <clears throat> and that's one thing I love about what we hold to and as far as our Baptist distinctives. Uh, we We encourage our folks to hold a Bible on their lap, to look at the verses themselves, and for the Holy Spirit to work. Uh, in their hearts to show them that truth. And it's hard to have a lot of doctrinal error when everybody in the church has their, their own Bible and the same Holy Spirit teaching them. And, and uh, if there's a problem, uh, it's easy. And, and I've even encouraged our folks here uh, to come and, and say, Pastor, let's, let's have a cup of coffee and look at this again because we might have missed it. And I value that as a pastor. I really do. And uh, if any of our folks ever feel that way, that, boy, I missed the truth there, uh, feel free to come and sit with me because my desire is to be right. And if I'm wrong on that issue, I don't want to keep teaching it. I want to get it right and make sure we're teaching right because our, our sole authority is not what preacher says. It's what the Bible says. And we want to be right on those things. So uh, I, I, I often try to encourage you guys uh, if there's ever a time where you feel that that's an issue, uh, my door is always open, and that does not offend me in the slightest. I rejoice in it, and I love to sit and discuss Scripture and look at Scripture, and we will look at it thoroughly and evaluate it and see if we're right. There may be an occasion or two we may depart uh, that meeting and still be uh, in disagreement on it, perhaps, but most of the time, we usually look at it, and either I was wrong or you were wrong, or sometimes we find out we were both wrong, <laughs> and it's something else entirely. Uh, but we want to be right, and God wants us to be right. And I don't think God sits up in heaven writing a mysterious book uh, of puzzles that we have to solve. God gave us His Word so that we could understand it. 
And uh, I don't believe the Bible is some puzzle to be solved or, or, or thought about and tried to figure out. He uses, when you talk about eternal things and things that are outside the realm of what we understand humanly, God, God does an amazing job at, at making some of those mysteries, if you will, clear to us. And uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about Revelation. And they said, well, that's a hard book to understand. But yet, when you're discussing the things that, that God is trying to teach in that book, He uses a lot of references to things that we can relate to or understand to help describe things that are pretty much outside the realm of what we can understand usually. And He does that so that He can reveal these end-time events to us. And uh, so uh, certainly... Uh, we want to be right in these areas and um, just want to encourage you in those things. Let's look in Exodus chapter number 25. <clears throat> We're dealing now with the tabernacle. We started last week just kind of giving a general, real high-level overview. It's interesting to me how that when man sinned in the garden, God had created man <coughs> to be in fellowship with him. That was God's desire in creating man and uh, when man sinned, he gave him a free choice, of course, to choose between uh, obeying God and, and uh, following God or, uh, or choosing his own will in his own way. And uh, when man sinned, uh, the Bible says that God judged him and he sent them out of the garden and he put a cherubim there with a flaming sword on the east side of, uh, of Eden. As we get to the tabernacle, uh, I'm not saying that this is some super spooky spiritualistic thing, but it is an interesting fact that when God sets up the tabernacle and He tells uh, Moses, and we're going to look at some of the specifics here in just a little bit, He has them set the tabernacle up to where the gate or the opening of the curtain to come into the outer court is always to the east. And so man, in order to come back to the presence of God and restore fellowship with God, has to come back through from the east and go through the sacrifice and the atoning blood that was shed. And as they get into the uh, inner uh, part of the sanctuary, the holy uh, place, uh, they are greeted there by some, uh, some furniture that's in there. We'll talk a little bit more specifically about some of those things, uh, Lord willing, either this week or in two weeks when I'm back. And uh, then there's the curtain that veils the, the, the separation between what's known as the holy place and then the holiest of holies. And the holiest of holies uh, was the area of the sanctuary that uh, was where God's presence resided. There was uh, only one piece of furniture in there, and uh, the Bible describes it in two parts. Um, one was the box itself of the Ark of the Covenant, and inside of that box were uh, the tables of stone that the Ten Commandments were written on, uh, that the law was written on. There was uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and they had that in there, and then they had a uh, one day's uh, ration of manna inside of there, and so that resided inside the box of the Ark of the Covenant, and then they had the lid of the covenant, and so the, the Ark of the Covenant is, is described in two parts, uh, the, the box itself and then the lid, and the lid of the covenant uh, had uh, some cherubims over top of it. And uh, that's where the mercy seat was said to have existed. So when the high priest would come in there uh, once a year for the atoning sacrifice uh, for man's sins, he would bring the blood in, and that's where he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And so that's just kind of a high-level overview. We gave you some of that information last week, uh, just trying to express uh, kind of what the tabernacle was like. <clears throat> and um, 
for so it's very interesting to me uh, that as man sinned and broke fellowship with God and came out of the garden, uh, it almost seems like he pictures that in reverse coming back into fellowship with him uh, through the things that are there in the tabernacle. And so just an interesting thought, uh, maybe one of those things that you say, well, Brother Greg, that might be a far stretch. And it could be. That's my opinion on the matter. But it is interesting that 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 progression coming back into fellowship with God seems to be the reverse of what took place in the garden when man sinned and broke fellowship with God and was driven from the garden. We pick up in chapter 25, verse number 1. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take uh, my offering. And this, uh, and by the way, I, I think that's key. The purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell with His children again. His presence could be there with them. And He does not force His presence on them. Do you notice that? God says, we're going to build this tabernacle, this place where I'm going to reside. I want it to be from the people that are willing God does not force salvation on any of us. He wants those that are willing. He wants those that say, you know, I, I can't save myself. I've got to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for me. And to come to the Lord with a willing heart. Uh, I, 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 it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? If we could get up and say... Uh, I can make my wife get saved or I can make my children get saved uh, by what I, what I do or what I tell them. But every man, the Bible says, will stand himself and give an account to God. I wish I could, I wish I could make the decision for other people to get saved. I wish I could just say, boy, you're saved and, and you don't have a choice in the matter. But God gives every one of us a willing spirit. And when God comes to Moses, He says, this is for the purpose of me coming and being able to have my presence among my children, my people. He says, I want it to be done with a willing heart. I'm not forcing myself upon them. And He says, uh, so He tells them in verse number 3, And this is the offering which ye shall take of them. And so He gives a list of the uh, materials that He's going to need them to give in order to build this tabernacle. <clears throat> and uh, so he says, uh, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red, badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil <clears throat> and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod of the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, there are a couple of names that I'll give you right now. And as we get into the rest of Exodus and into Leviticus, you'll find there's probably one or two other names that God refers to this, this structure as. One of them, of course, is the tabernacle. We know, it, we know it most commonly as the Old Testament tabernacle. God refers to it here as the sanctuary um, in verse number 8. Uh, in Leviticus, he refers to it as his house, the Lord's house. Um, and then, of course, when Solomon builds the temple, uh, which is patterned after the tabernacle, uh, again, that becomes the Lord's house and is referred to commonly as that. Uh, 
And uh, it's very, very easy for us sometimes to get confused in the day that we live and think, okay, this church is the Lord's house. And we often refer to it, well, uh, are you going to the Lord's house this Saturday, uh, this Sunday? Well, wait a minute. This building, this structure here in the New Testament times is not where God resides. The Bible tells us that His temple now is where? In us. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. You're bought with a price. And so God's presence doesn't reside in a building or a structure anymore. It now resides in in man. Uh, I love the book of Haggai because we see that when Solomon's temple was destroyed, the people of Israel had a heart to rebuild the temple. And uh, it laid waste for a number of years. And if you'll remember the story, uh, Nehemiah comes along and they rebuild the walls. And, and uh, Ezra comes in at the same time and uh, reads the book of the law. And the people repent and sackcloth and ashes and bring great revival. And they restore, reiterate their covenant with God to follow Him. And they start work on the temple to restore it. And they lay the foundations. And they're all excited. And then they just stop work. And the foundations are laying there for nine years. They just sit there. Nothing done to them. And God comes to him in the book of Haggai and says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, you bring in much, and lo, it came to naught. And he talks about earning wages, and earning wages to build with a bag full of holes, fill it with a bag full of holes. He said, you bring it home, and I blow upon it, and it goes away, it disappears. And he said, why? Because you are dealing with your houses, your sealed houses, and uh, my house is lying waste. And so he said, I want you to take wood and build my house, and I'll take pleasure in it. And he talks about that in Haggai chapter number 1. And then in Haggai chapter 2, as they do that, um, the, uh, the, the older generation that remembered the temple in its glory, Solomon's temple, they looked at the efforts of this younger generation attempting to restore the temple, and they begin to criticize them and say, oh, it's nothing like Solomon's temple was. This, it's not nearly as glorious as what Solomon did. And you know what God tells them in Haggai chapter 2? He said, I will fill my house, and the glory of this second house will be greater than that of the first. And you know what we learn from that? That it is not the structure that has God's glory. But it is His presence that brings His glory. And I'll tell you this, you can have a a very ornate church building, and you can have thousands of people attend that service. And if God's presence is not there, there is no glory in it. But when you get a bunch of God-fearing people that love God with their hearts, that walk with God, that fellowship with God, and they have the close, intimate presence of God in their life, and they all assemble all in one place at one time. Can I tell you this? God's presence is so great that His glory is given in that. And so even though this tabernacle is talking about uh, the gold and the silver and the bronze and all the the fine linens and things that God uh, wants there, Notice that it is not the tabernacle that is the greatest of the glory of this, but it is God's presence among His people. Now, as we get to verse number 9 and 10, uh, let's look at verse number 9. Let's back up verse number 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So that's His purpose. Verse number 9, according to all that I show thee, 
after the what's the what's the next word here? Pattern of the tabernacle <coughs> and the pattern of all instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Now, wait a minute. What what do you mean by pattern? Well, hold your place here for just a moment. Look with me over in the book of Hebrews, chapter number eight. Hebrews chapter number eight. <coughs> In verse number 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if we hear, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow, notice this, of what? Heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And so we find that this, this pattern, and God is going to be very, very specific about some things here over the next several chapters. This pattern that God gives to Moses is patterned after a tabernacle that man did not build, but the Lord Jesus Christ built in heaven. Now I'm going to tell you what, that's pretty exciting to me. Because when Jesus died on the cross, if you remember when Mary came to the uh, tomb the first day of the week, and He wasn't there, and she was discouraged, and she turned around, and she sees Him, but she doesn't recognize Him. She thinks He's the gardener. You remember that? And she's asking Him, if you know where He's at, tell me where you've laid Him, because I want to go to Him. And He says, Mary, He calls her by name. And aren't you glad God knows your name? Oh man, what a thought. And uh, he calls her by name, and immediately she knows who he is. And I, I don't know that, the Bible doesn't say that she went running to him or tried to embrace him or anything like that. But this is Mary. <laughs> and her Savior is alive. And Jesus tells her, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. And then just uh, the next chapter, he's on the road to Emmaus with men that he's talking with. And they touch him and they handle him. They know, they, they, they can see him and feel him physically. Just a short while later, he meets with his disciples and he tells them, put your, put your hands in my, my nail-pierced hands. You, you can touch me. You can, I'm here. I'm real. Why was it that Mary couldn't touch him, but these other men could? And the reason was, when the priest would uh, take the sacrifice, the blood atonement for our sins, inside of this holy place, that they had to be undefiled. They could not be touched with the sinful hands. And they had to wash in the brazen laver. And they had to go in through the holy place, into the holy of holies. And in fact, the power and the Shekinah glory of God, His presence was so strong in the holy of holies that the high priest would not even face the Ark of the Covenant. They would go in backwards with their back to it. They would have a scarlet cord tied to their ankle. And they would have bells on the hem of their garments. And the reason they did that was because the high priest could not even look at the mercy seat where God was. 
If they did, they would die from it. If a, if a priest was contaminated or unholy or unpure, he would be struck dead in the holiness presence of God. And so no one able to go into the holiest of holies could go in there to get him if such a thing happened. And they used that scarlet cord sometimes if a priest were to ever have that happen to pull him out of the holiest of holies. And so this, this, this sacredness of this place, the purity of this place, the holiness of God's presence was so great that this high priest who had purified himself and washed himself took the blood of an innocent sacrifice and he walks in backwards to the holiest of holies. And he sprinkles his own blood, or that blood of the, the, the sacrifice on top of the mercy seat as an atonement for man's sin. But when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, the Bible says that that veil that separated the holy place from the holiest of holies, the place where God's presence resided, the place where the mercy seat was, that that veil was ripped in twain from top to bottom. And could you imagine being the high priest on that day? For the first time in the history of that tabernacle, that high priest could face the mercy seat. And he could be in the presence of God face to face. Can I tell you this, that ever since Calvary, those that have had the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to their account by faith, by putting their faith in Him. You and I have the great privilege, according to Hebrews, to come boldly to the throne of grace. We get to walk into His throne room anytime we desire. Not with arrogance, not with arrogance, but with great humility and great love for Him. And we don't have to have a priest. We get to walk in and have the direct presence of God. I'm going to tell you what, I love studying the tabernacle. I really do. And we're going to get into some things. I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to have a hard time teaching on it. And uh, so if I, <laughs> if I do, just bear with me. Because, boy, it's such a joy that it brings to our hearts when we realize how God gave us these things to show us and to picture what takes place in heaven. And I'm going to tell you, I get excited about this stuff. I don't know about you, but it, it's amazing to me. Because when, when we sit down at the end of the day and we ponder it, we understand that we do not deserve it. Now, I'm going I'm to say a couple more thoughts here before we go any further, and then we'll probably end there for today. God is getting ready to give them specific instructions. And He's going to tell Moses, He says, I want you to make this piece of furniture, and here's how I want it to be. I want it to be this size tall, and I want it to be this size length, and I want it to be this size depth, and I want it to be decorated this way, and I want this type of metal used, and I want this type of wood used. And God is extremely specific about what happens to the furniture of the tabernacle. I uh, grew up in a generation that had come up with this idea and they used the passage in the Old Testament when Samuel was anointing David as king of Israel. And the verse was given, and the scripture says, For man looketh not on the outward appearance, or man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart, or the Lord looketh on the heart. And they took that verse way out of its context. And they said, So outwardly we can do whatever we want, because really all that matters is your heart. 
And they started this idea that we could live like the world and act like the world and be like the world. <clears throat> and God really didn't concern Himself with those things that made up the outward or the physical part of our lives. He only was worried about the spiritual part of our lives. Can I tell you this? We find a tremendous principle that is taught here. And that is that God is very much interested with the physical parts of the tabernacle, isn't He? I mean, the spiritual, His, his presence among His people was paramount, no doubt. But God didn't just say, hey, why don't you put a little furniture in there and uh, when it gets done, let me know and I'll come put my presence in here. No, no. He said, I want it to be this size. I want it to be this shape. I want it to look this way. I want it to be so distinguished and so set apart for a special use. And can I tell you this? If we don't learn anything else at all through the lesson of the tabernacle, can I tell you this? That yes, while God does look on the heart, He is absolutely concerned with the physical traits of our tabernacle, our temple for Him. The outside does matter. He certainly tells the, the Pharisees this, doesn't he? He talks about them and he said, Woe unto, woe unto you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, Outwardly you're clean. You're like whitewashed sepulchres. Outwardly you're clean. But inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. He talks about washing the inside of the cup and the outside of the cup. And so many of us get this idea that God is only concerned about the heart and that the outside doesn't matter. I, I don't find that anywhere in Scripture, either by principle or by illustration. We get to the tabernacle, the place where God is going to take and put His presence in there. Can I tell you this? It was not the furniture of the tabernacle that brought glory to that place. It wasn't the specificness of that furniture that brought glory to that place. It was God's presence that brought glory to that place. But... Does that cause us to say that God didn't care about the furniture? Oh, no. If anything, we look at it and say, boy, he was very much concerned about it, wasn't he? So much so that he gave specific instructions. By the way, if we take time to read our Bible, we'll find out that God gives you and I specific instructions of how we're to possess this tabernacle that he lives in. How we're to live holy. How we're to live in such a way that is pleasing to him. And absolutely, he's very in, in, involved in that. We're going to pick up there next week, and we'll start getting into some of the specifics of some of these pieces of furniture and what they represent, how they picture Christ so vividly. And uh, I'll tell you, I love, I love studying this stuff. I couldn't wait to get to this part of Scripture, and uh, hopefully it'll be a help and encouragement to you. Let's bow our heads in prayer when we dismiss. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. And Lord, encourage us through the teaching of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.